Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to War Room. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Witt, the Editor-in-Chief of War Room. June means it's LGBTQ Pride Month, which is a time to acknowledge, celebrate, and reflect on the gay rights movement in the United States and around the world and to celebrate the many contributions of LGBTQ people in our collective political, economic, social, and cultural life. And this, of course, includes service in the armed forces. And so we know that LGBTQ people have been part of the fabric of military organizations uh, for as long as we have recorded history, but whether they could serve openly and honestly as LGBTQ people has been a fraught question for modern militaries. In the United States, there's a very complicated history of LGBTQ service in the military with major changes happening in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. And here, of course, I'm talking about the law commonly known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It's repeal in 2010 and now more than a decade of post Don't Ask, Don't Tell military life. And I'm so pleased to have with us today in the studio, Dixon Osborne, who was a major force behind this repeal and who is the author of a new book, Mission Possible, the story of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And he's here to talk with us today about this this history of the last few decades. So Dixon, welcome to War Room. Thank you. It's great to join you. And so you'll notice I didn't do much of a biography or introduction. Uh, so that's actually where I'd like to start. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about sort of how you how you got involved in uh, this question of repealing this this law? Uh, certainly. And again, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and honor to be with you all today. Uh, people have asked me how I started Service Members Legal Defense Network, and I often say very naively. Uh, because I was new to the scene in 1993. I had just graduated law school and business school, uh, and I connected with uh, former Army Captain Michelle Beneke uh, to try to help President Bill Clinton live up to his promise to repeal the then-existing ban on gays in the military. And when that did not happen, and Don't Ask, Don't Tell became the law, she and I co-founded Service Members Legal Defense Network, now, Michelle was a captain in the Army. Uh, her dad was a lifetime military. This was a passion for her. For me, it took me a while to realize why this mattered so much to me. And it's because I was a gay kid growing up in Fort Worth, Texas, where there was no affirmation, where I was beat up as a kid. And I recognized how important it was for there to be federal laws that did not discriminate based on sexual orientation. So that's what led me at a, a moment in time to co-found Service Members Legal Defense Network. And it set me on a career path that always was at the intersection of national and international security and civil and human rights. So after my time at Service Members Legal Defense Network, 
Uh, I became the director of law and security at Human Rights First, leading efforts to close Guantanamo, uh, make enduring the promise not to torture uh, uh, by U.S. officials uh, as required under the Geneva Conventions, Convention Against Torture, U.S. domestic laws. And then I was recruited to go to the Center for Justice and Accountability, whose mission was to track down war criminals around the globe and uh, bring them to justice in a court of law. So that's sort of the full circle of my career. Uh, and it's all started back in 1993 when I co-founded Service Members Legal Defense Network. I really like the idea that, right, the personal and the professional and the political can all exist in 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 sort of harmony and together. And I think that's that's evident throughout the the sort of career story you just told us as well, because certainly, right, laws affect every right everyday life they affect us in um, in very real and concrete concrete ways and I think one of the things I appreciate about your the story you just told and, and your background that comes out in the book is that there's there's not a specific connection to the military right you're not a service member or a veteran yourself uh, there's no sort of like deep uh, familial connection. And yet you can recognize uh, when there are human rights and civil rights at play and you can and see you can see the sort of big picture of, of how these things are related in the public life of the United States. Let me say this. I thought for LGBTQ civil rights, there were two driving issues that would make a transformation in terms of equality and advancement. And one of them was repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and uh, having uh, a law of non-discrimination because there are 60 to 80,000 service members actively serving that are LGBTQ. Uh, there are over a million LGBT veterans. Uh, it's something that is incredibly meaningful and touches on the lives of most Americans. Uh, so that's part of why I invested my time on that issue. I also knew that marriage equality was something that would be transformative. So I always thought military and marriage were the two biggest issues that the LGBT could, could and should pursue at the beginning. And, and quite fortunately, from 2010 to 2015, we were able to achieve both of those goals. It was a pretty momentous uh, few few years in the early, early 20, 2010s. Yes. Um, let's take a step back in time to the early 1990s. And you mentioned in your in your first response, right, Bill Clinton, then candidate Bill Clinton's uh, promise to, to reveal the, the ban on gay service or openly gay service in the U.S. military. And so I'd like for you to give us a sort of short history lesson of how do we get from that promise of a Democratic presidential candidate to don't ask, don't tell, a little bit of an explanation of exactly what the law was Right? There's a lot of um, shorthand about what it is and what it does. And so you know, why is it why is it enacted? And then why was it a problem? Right? Why was it, I think, in many cases, maybe worse for some people than what had even come, come before, which was an outright ban? It's a very good question. So President Bill Clinton was the first president who actually uh, sort of embraced the LGBTQ community and said that we were part of the American family. And he was asked to do one thing, which was to sign an executive order repealing what were then regulations 
that banned lesbian, gay, bisexual service members from serving. That was something that was within his power. As soon as he ascended into office, uh, Congress uh, immediately opposed that effort. And uh, the Pentagon brass was concerned that he'd be moving way too quickly. So there was a, a negotiation that ensued for six months, which resulted in something called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I can explain the prior policy by talking about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, don't Ask, Don't Tell was a law passed by Congress that banned people from coming out. Uh, and there are three bases for discharge, statements, acts, and marriage. A statement meant coming out, but it meant coming out to anyone, anywhere, anytime, whether on duty or off duty. It meant coming out to your parents, to doctors, to clergy, uh, not just to your commanders. An act, the second basis for discharge, was sex, but it was also defined as any act that a reasonable person construed to be gay. So if two people of the same gender were hugging, even if it was somebody just consoling another person, that could have been construed as a basis for discharge under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And then marriage, which I always thought was quite prescient because marriage was not available back in 1993 and wasn't legal nationally until 2015. But marriage or attempted marriage, meaning civil unions, domestic partnerships, were also banned. Now, President Clinton announced that this was an honorable compromise and a step forward. And General Colin Powell said that this law would not allow people to witch hunt. We weren't going to seek to learn sexual orientation. No, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Sam Nunn, said we're not going to allow sex squads. So there was some intent by our leaders that this law was supposed to be different than what preceded. And if you looked at the implementing regulations, there were some rules that gave cause for optimism. It said that if you were a gay service member, you could go to a gay bar, you could join a sports league, you could uh, join the gay men's chorus or read a book with LGBTQ content. And that was not supposed to be a basis for discharge. It was supposed to create this sort of zone of privacy. But the implementing regulations also said that none of these promises created a substantive or procedural right. So if the command violated it and wanted to discharge you for those things, they could. So that was the giant loophole that a Mack truck could drive through that let this don't ask, don't tell law be really just the same ban that had existed since World War II. Uh, and in that, uh, in that disconnect, in this idea that it was better, but the reality that it wasn't is what created you know, this enormous problem. We had Michelle Benicke and I, in founding Service Members Legal Defense Network, we wanted to be sort of the 911 for service members who were caught in the crosshairs here and did not know how to navigate hundreds of pages of regulations uh, that were implementing this new law. And the result is that over the course of the 17 years of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the Pentagon discharged between two and four service members every day for being lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Harassment notes surge. Our clients were telling us that because of the conversation in 1993, they felt like they had a bullseye on their back because everybody was talking about it now. And it was hard to evade that everyday conversation that was going on. And while there were so many service members who actually served openly because their commanders didn't care uh, and didn't want to make an issue of it, it was always this damocles sword hanging over the necks of every service member because you just didn't know. You know 
which service member might turn you in or which commander might make an issue of this and your career could come to a crashing halt. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, it gets to what we know about the, the history of LGBTQ military service. It's always been uh, without a, without a legal protection, it's always been subject to judgment of commanders, to local circumstances, um, to this or that. So that idea of this sort of this this sort of Damocles hanging over um, has been a pretty constant feature for gay and lesbian and, and bisexual service members. Um, the fact that don't ask, don't tell is a law right? Rather than coming through an executive order or coming through a different uh, route to create military uh, policy and regulation has to, has to also change the approach to repealing it, right? So this, this makes me think the fact that you have training as an attorney is important. The fact um, that, you know, service members are sort of caught in this legal and regulatory space that's, that's quite difficult to navigate. How does how does the congressional piece sort of fit in to this approach on on repeal and changing the changing the law? That's a great question, Jackie. Prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the ban existed only as a set of regulations, which meant the Secretary of Defense could change those regulations at any time, or the Commander in Chief, the President, could issue an executive order to change those regulations. When Congress intervened in 1993. They made a, a statute, and that meant to change that statute, you either had to go into court and have the Supreme Court declare it unconstitutional, or you had to build a movement to get Congress to overturn what they did. Uh, so Michelle Beneke and I uh, pursued both strategies. We pursued both going into the federal courts as well as into, into Congress. Uh, and the federal courts, initially, we had some hope. Uh, under the old policy, you had individuals like Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer win her case, uh, and the courts had determined that the old ban was unconstitutional, and then the Army did not pursue her under the new ban, and she served openly for four years. But for those individuals who challenged the new law, the courts used the fact that there was a debate in Congress and that there was consensus among a bipartisan majority in Congress, by Pentagon leadership, and by a Democrat president as a reason not to interfere with that decision. And the courts held, and this is a pretty close paraphrase, we are not sitting here to judge the wisdom of this law, but we find we, the courts, to be at our lowest power in interpreting military personnel decisions. And hence, they sort of punted on the deeper constitutional question of uh, you know, whether or not this law was indeed constitutional. I mean, they ruled that it was constitutional. Was constitutional. Yeah. Which they, it's interesting because the, the courts have often deferred to the military, right, to make personal decisions about requirements, regulations, whether it's about uniforms or religious freedom and all sorts of things. And And here you sort of end up in this again, almost a catch-22 where you're between military judgment and the and, and what's been enacted in, in statute with very few sort of paths to remedy, um, remedy harm in some ways. You know, there's the doctrine of military deference that the court frequently invokes. And the, the sort of brick wall that we hit is that it did not matter 
how much evidence we could muster that uh, this law caused harm, that it, it was the law that hurt unit cohesion and military readiness. It didn't matter how much data we gave to the court to demonstrate that. They simply then deferred to the opinions of military brass that uh, that the military was of the view that it did hurt unit cohesion. And they did not have to produce any evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, you know, this uh, the Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the cliff and it rolling back down on us all the time. And we knew, we knew, Michelle and I knew that uh, ultimately this would likely have to go back to Congress unless there was a significant change in the courts. And there was throughout the, the 17 years an interplay between the courts and Congress on this. Uh, but we knew that we had to build a movement where we had to change opinion. Now, in 1993, uh, the majority of the public actually supported the ban on gays in the military, and it was a bipartisan Congress that that passed it. Pentagon leadership supported it. There's a poll of service members who are 90% supported the ban back in 1993, uh, and it was a Democratic president that supported it. So we knew that we had to change public, political, and military opinion. Uh, to create an environment where Congress could revisit this. Right. So that let's talk a little bit about that sort of try tripart movement um, to change to change opinion and to change environment. So in the history of U.S. civil rights and the relationship between civil rights and, and military service, we often have a question about whether the military is leading on pace with or lagging U.S. society, right? And racial integration is sort of held up as the example of the military maybe on the leading edge of where society is. If you think about that, that question about the military leading, lagging, or on pace with society when it comes to LGBTQ rights, um, how would you how would you describe that that relationship? And then. And then I'd like to also sort of hear you talk a little bit about how you how you built the the movement. What were your sort of approaches and the and the different uh, tacks you took to to really help the the country undergo um, a political and, and cultural transformation in many ways? No, I think we look at Truman's executive order uh, desegregating the armed forces as you no. Know, a leader in civil rights for uh, African-Americans. It wasn't until after he integrated the troops uh, that you got the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education that ended uh, segregation in elementary schools, and that preceded the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And so one could certainly make an argument that Truman uh, helped lead the armed forces in an area of equality ahead of where the rest of society was. You could also look at it in the reverse and look, well, look how long it took. I mean, we had mm-hmm. African-American men serving uh, during the American Revolution uh, and on forward. And yet we still had segregation for all those years. And uh, clearly, uh, you know, slavery existed until uh, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, and then you have the backlash on that, uh, and and all these steps the military did not lead uh, until after World War II. Uh, and one could 
also note that opinions on segregation, public opinions on segregation, really evolved uh, in the 1940s and in World War II as they saw black troops coming back from Europe, having liberated uh, the concentration camps uh, and public opinion couldn't reconcile how we asked them to shed blood for our nation and for the world to liberate peoples, uh, only to then force them back into uh, conditions of inequality. I think you can say the same thing on uh, issues of LGBTQ rights. Uh, there have been LGBT service members in every uh, conflict uh, that we've had as well. And it is rumored that uh, Baron von Steuben, who was the chief strategist for George Washington and the Continental Army, uh, was gay. Uh, so we've been in every, every conflict, and it's taken a long time for society and the military to step forward. But at the same time, you know, ending Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the first and only time that Congress actually has done something in support of LGBTQ equality, and it was a major step. And there are those who argue that the Supreme Court would not have come down with a marriage equality decision in 2015, but for some kind of political down payment in advance, that it needed mm. to see that the, the politicians were also there so that the Supreme Court, which also does not want to be necessarily at the cutting edge, it, it wants to oftentimes affirm and embrace where society is, uh, that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was an incredibly uh, important moment uh, in, advance in, in, in advancement of equality. Sure. I think that is the idea that there are right multiple paths and multiple tracks. Uh, and the answer is almost never as easy as leading, lagging, or on pace with. We've got evidence for sort of all all three in different in different areas, I think is a is an astute one. When you when you put together this again, it's a 17 year campaign, right? Um, you know, a, a, the 17 year campaign to to repeal this law, to change the the social and cultural environment, to change the political environment. What were some of the primary uh, approaches or tactics that you all sort of engaged in? Um, as part of this this concerted effort? The first one was storytelling. Michelle and I believe that the American public really did not know what Don't Ask, Don't Tell entailed and had not heard sufficient numbers of stories about the harm that it could cause. And so we started, in addition to trying to help our clients save their careers or at least achieve the least worst result possible. Uh, when possible, we would talk about their stories. So you had uh, Corporal Kevin Blasing stationed in South Carolina, who was a Marine of the Quarter, and he went to his psychologist who then turned him in. And I think the public reaction is, why is a mental health provider turning somebody in? And in fact, he actually never came out. He was asking questions about what it meant to be gay, because he was still trying to struggle with what his identity might be. But just thinking about being gay was enough for his commander to pursue discharge. You had uh, West Point cadet uh, Nikki Galvin, who her commander at West Point asked her point blank if she and another uh, cadet were lovers. 
She refused to answer. He started an investigation in which they took her personal diary. This is a diary that her that grief counselors ordered her to keep because her mom had just died. And in it, she expressed feelings of attraction for women. And it was that personal diary that they used as a basis for discharge. Uh, you know, we reported on witch hunts where they went after mass numbers of women or men in various branches of the service. What we wanted to do is sort of awaken people to the reality uh, of how harmful this law was, uh, both for the individual, but also for the armed forces, where they were losing really good people uh, because of the law itself. So the first thing that we had to do was is to try to provide those stories with a theory that this would educate and help move opinion. And I think it, it played that role pretty significantly. The second thing was identifying sort of those game-changing moments. Uh, and two cases were sort of game-changers. The first one, which was a horrible tragedy, was the murder of Private First Class Barry Winchell at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, by two soldiers who thought he was gay because he was dating a performer at a local nightclub, uh, a transgender performer. Uh, I think this sort of shocked the conscience, both of the public, mm -hmm. that something like this could happen, but also the Pentagon. And the Pentagon, in response to that, uh, and Michelle and I and all of our reports have been warning about the escalation of anti-gay harassment and that the Pentagon needed to take it seriously and take steps, and we made recommendations. And in the aftermath of that murder, they did pass uh, regulations trying to target anti-gay harassment. So the sort of cadences people would sing that would use words like faggot, they started to recognize that using slurs was actually not about <laughs> uh, you know, cohesion and bonding. It actually was uh, you know, destructive of that you know, cohesion by, by targeting individuals within that unit. So they, they realized that uh, name-calling, uh, hazing, uh, that use anti-gay epithets uh, and the like were, were damaging, and they started training and targeting that. And I think if they had not done that starting in 2000, if the anti-gay climate that had existed had not significantly reduced, uh, even in 2010 with the leaders that we had, we may not have been able to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Because mm -hmm. the result in 2010, and the Pentagon undertook another survey, but in that survey, 72% of service members were perfectly okay uh, with lesbian, gay, bisexual people serving openly most had admitted that they served alongside people who were gay in their units. Uh, so it was, it was a dramatic shift from the 90% opposition in 1993 to the 72% support in 2010 uh, within the military itself uh, that created an environment that allowed the leaders then to push for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I, I remember I was at a faculty member at West Point um, when the repeal came through, when it happened. And I, I remember, I remember that moment pretty, pretty clearly the sort of like before and after the, the, the sense that things were going to be different. And of course it took another year for it to fully be in place. I, I assume you remember where you were when the news I, about the repeal came through. I very much do because repeal happened on my birthday. Oh, what a nice uh, present. 
<laughs> which was remarkable because uh, the when the Senate voted to repeal, and it would take another year for it to be certified and actually implemented, but when the Senate made the decisive vote that Don't Ask, Don't Tell should be repealed, it was on December 18th, 2010, and this was on a Saturday during a lame duck session in Congress. Uh, and typically, you know, and I live in Washington, D.C., lame duck sessions really don't do much. But this ended up being one of the most consequential lame duck sessions ever. And it was a fairly tense moment going into this vote because uh, Harry Reid, who was the majority leader in the Senate, had tried twice before to get Don't Ask, Don't Tell repealed, and he failed because Senator John McCain, who's widely respected, uh, filibustered it both times. And it was an attachment to the, the National Defense Authorization Act, the defense bill that everybody says is the must-pass bill every year. But McCain filibustered it. And he tried again the third time. But on the third time, it was a standalone bill uh, sponsored by Senator Lieberman and Senator Susan Collins. And we knew that the support existed for repeal. Uh, and we knew that some of those who joined McCain on the to, to block the vote before did so because for other reasons. They, they wanted amendments to the defense bill, which Harry Reid was not allowing. But if it were just solely on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, there had been significant movement. And we ended up having eight Republican senators join the Democrats in favor of repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which speaks to, and in the House, you also had a significant bipartisan majority vote for repeal, which spoke to how Michelle Beneke and I operated over those 17 years. As we did not want this to be uh, a partisan issue. We wanted this to be an issue that was really about national security and military readiness. Uh, and we specifically tried to educate uh, you know, both sides of the aisle as to that. And I, I think you then see it in the results that you had such significant bipartisan support for repeal. And I was, to your exact question, I was watching it on C-SPAN because it was my <laughs> birthday and I was having 70 people over for dinner that night to celebrate oh, the birthday. And so I was running into the kitchen and running downstairs and watching the votes and counting who was voting for what when I knew that we were repealed. And I turned to uh, uh, the person who would become my spouse and said, I think we're going to have a lot more people come over tonight. <laughs> and yes, our, our house in Georgetown just swelled and we went through no, at least three dozen bottles of Kaba that night. Absolutely. I just, I think that that moment in time, um, so important. And then of course, over the, over the next almost a year uh, before, you know, September of, of 2021, but now it's been, it's been over a decade now. Um, and so I'd like to, to get your quick thoughts on sort of what that, what that decade has been like. Uh, as we think about uh, LGBTQ uh, military service, especially as we think about uh, transgender military service uh, over the last uh, several years, so many policy changes and still significant uncertainty around that. Um, and then finally, to close out, uh, where do you where do you see uh, the sort of future uh, challenges and, and opportunities in this uh, civil rights space? The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been both a non-issue and a really big deal simultaneously. It has been a non-issue 
because in the reports back from Admiral Mike Mullen uh, and every chairman of the Joint Chiefs since, it, it's not something that comes up uh, in the briefings uh, at bases and installations and ships uh, worldwide. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, all those who thought the sky would fall, it is not. The critics who thought that there would be a mass exodus mm-hmm. of service members as a result of this law did not pan out. And we knew that it was going to be a big nothing burger in that, that regard. And that's exactly how, it, how it's played out. And part of it is a, a tribute to how they did the implementation because they did a year-long worth of training. They knew where the opinions were of service members and what their concerns and fears were. And so they just did a remarkable job of uh, teeing up the repeal and what it would mean. And it, it happened relatively seamlessly. It has been a big deal on that hand because now you have service members who can show up as their authentic selves. They, they don't have the Damocles sword hanging over their head. And you have individuals who now are free to rise to the highest ranks as themselves. So you had one year after repeal, uh, Brigadier General Tammy Smith become the first open lesbian flag officer. She retired as a major general. You have uh, at least three others right now who are serving openly at the flag officer rank, which is just remarkable. Uh, So it shows what can happen when you end laws of discrimination and people are able to be out and and to be leaders, uh, not just a, a military leader, but a leader as uh, being somebody who's authentic in, in those roles. It has also allowed other things. I, I you can't take full credit for something like this, but you had in the immediate aftermath of repeal, um, Eric Fanning become Secretary of the Army. That's a civilian position, but would Obama have nominated him to that position if there had still been enormous anti-gay animus in the ranks? Probably not. Uh, and you had the story of uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, who uh, served in Afghanistan uh, in the Navy Reserves. And, uh, you know, after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, he was the first openly gay man to win a presidential nominating contest. And he became the first openly gay man uh, to be Senate confirmed for a cabinet position. It's just a sort of a remarkable story. And who knows what path his life would have taken had Don't Ask, Don't Tell still been in effect. Now, just because it's been just this enormous success in so many ways doesn't mean that it's been great for everyone. And I think there's a important statistics that that tease that up is that on the one hand, you have about 80,000 troops actively serving that self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And I think the number is 57% of those actually are not out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And the major reason for them not being out in the workplace, according to another study, is they fear reprisal. So there's still this very real sense that if they are out, that something bad will happen, that they will not get the promotion, they will face harassment. And in that disconnect shows where the rest of the work lies uh, within the armed forces. And it's, I mean, it's true for uh, you know, our African-American service members, our Latino, Latina service members, uh, our female service members, is that 
prejudice continues to exist, and it's something that the military leadership always has to pay attention to, to try to mitigate the negative effects of those prejudices and support those who might be enduring them. Right. Cultural change um, alongside legal and policy and regulatory change is is really important and takes um, a long, a long time. And I think one of the things that that we definitely see is a continued need for attention to uh, ensuring that discrimination is is not tolerated within uh, the military, that the military is working to create diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments, um, and certainly uh, human sexuality and, and gender expression are, are, are a major part of that uh, part of that effort. So much work already done, but many, many things still still to come. Um, Dixon, I'm looking at our, I'm, I'm looking at our time and it goes so quickly when we're having uh, really excellent, uh, excellent conversations. So as today's podcast uh, comes to a close, um, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us in the War Room studio. It's been an honor to be with you today. Thank you. And I'd also like then to thank all of our listeners out there as well. Please send us your comments on this podcast or others. We'd love to hear your suggestions or ideas for future topics as well. We are always interested in hearing from you. If you've not already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to War Room via our website, which will put updates and content directly in your inbox. And you can also subscribe to A Better Piece on the podcatcher of your choice. And if you would, rate and review this podcast, and that will help other people find us as well. We look forward to having you all with us again soon. And until next time from the War Room, I'm Jackie Wood. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.